0: Hello, cyber friends. This is Chatting Cyber, and I'm your host, Mark Schein. This podcast focuses on how companies can help qualify and quantify the cost of a data breach. Chatting Cyber features some of the most well-respected privacy and cyber experts in the world. Join the conversation with business leaders, government agencies, and cyber experts to learn more about how and why they got into this ever-changing field that we call cyber risk. Hello, Cyber Colleagues. I'm Mark Schein, National Co-Chair of the Cyber Center of Excellence here at Marsh McClinn Agency. And today we have a true cyber celebrity with us, Justin Daniels. Thank you for coming on, Justin. Oh, thank you. Nice to be here with you today. So, Justin, um, you know, we were talking pre-show, and I mean, your experience is just so unique. Um, my question is, how does a guy from Pittsburgh growing up in Pittsburgh end up being uh, the cyber practice leader and the digital practice leader for one of the top law firms in the country?
1: Well, uh, I guess it started back in 1998 when I went to school at night, I got out, um, weren't a lot of jobs in Pittsburgh, very different than it is today. And I went down to Atlanta just to, you know, network with some people that I was introduced to. And I was offered a job in 48 hours. So packed up my stuff and uh, I moved to Atlanta. And I was a corporate M&A attorney for a long time. I started to do some technology work. And then I would tell you in November of 2014, I was working with a client just on a commercial transaction with Sony right before the North Koreans decided to uh, hack into them. And then the other interesting event for me was I hosted the Steve Jobs of Israel in Atlanta for one day. He was in town to talk about his connected car and cybersecurity. And after I spent the day with him, he said, you know, really have an interesting ecosystem here in in Atlanta for cybersecurity, you should think about getting the word out. And that's when it dawned on me. I was like, hmm, this cybersecurity thing, maybe I should make this a focus of what I was doing. And that's where it all started for me. And then it got into conferences and speaking and a variety of things. And fast forward to 2023, that's where I'm at.
0: Who better to learn from than Steve? So, um, you know, we understand that you're also part of uh, you know, a TEDx speaker. Um, uh, mm-hmm. you also run your own podcast. Can you just share us a little bit about what the TED uh the TED talk was about as well as the podcast?
1: Uh, sure. So, back in 2017, I was selected to do a TED talk. I did it on uh why you hold the key to cybersecurity. So, I remember it well because uh to get up in the red dot in front of 700 people in a packed theater and your wife is there your mom all your friends uh that was the most nervous i've ever been to give a, a presentation i didn't know what a beta blocker was they told me i was like i i politely declined that and so uh that's what it was and interestingly enough you i always put it on linkedin every october just to put it out there and i've watched it a few times and yeah, it's still still relevant so i It was a lot of fun to do that. I will say, if you ever have the opportunity to do it, what's awesome about it is everybody in the audience is rooting for you to give the best speech of your life. And so that's what makes it fun is it's such a positive environment. As for the podcast, uh, because my wife is an entrepreneur and privacy consultant, and we kind of complement each other besides being married during the pandemic we decided to start a podcast called the She Said Privacy, He Said Security Podcast. So we've been doing that now for the last three years. And now we're a highly rated podcast. We have different guests from privacy and security backgrounds. And we also have a very big emphasis on um, online safety for children. So we have a lot of guests about that. But that's that's where that came from. And it, that's been a lot of fun.
0: Sure. So, so let's jump right into it. Since clearly you have the expertise, um, smart contracts and digital wallets. Um, should our listeners have security concerns, or are there security concerns when it comes to smart contracts and digital wallets?
1: So, if we're going to start talking in the crypto space, the reason why digital wallets and smart contracts are so important is they are foundational building blocks for just about any use case. So, if your audience is out there and they bought an NFT. If they hold their Bitcoin, then they're going to have dealt with one of those two or both. And so here's the challenge with smart contracts and digital wallets is most smart contracts are made with code that's like open source, meaning Mm -hmm. everyone's able to look at it. But that also includes the hackers. And what's happened up until this year is it was a, a race to get to market the fastest. And the challenge you have with that is. In my experience, privacy and security are not a design feature of most innovative technology. They're an afterthought. And it's the case with smart contracts and digital wallets. The challenge with digital wallets is is very true. If you don't have protect your private key, it ain't your cheese. And what it means is if you get a malicious link that looks like a legitimate email saying, hey, reset the password or something related to your digital wallet and you click on it, What you've effectively done is sent a message to the threat actor that has allowed them to get access to your digital wallet, and it can happen instantaneously. So when you are in an industry like crypto or blockchain that is completely reliant on software code and automation, you are creating the opportunity for vulnerabilities from a cybersecurity perspective such that you have hacks that can happen even faster because it's really all automated. There's not a lot of human intervention.
0: So as we're seeing more fintech products being rolled out into the US, Mm -hmm. um, how can businesses and or individuals start to manage their privacy concerns, right? Or security concerns?
1: Well, I think from an individual perspective, it starts with changing, shifting your mindset. And what I mean by that is, If someone, if an app wants you to sign up to give you a free service, you now need to know they want to give it to you free because what do they want? They want your data. So it means start making intelligent choices about, do I want to give my data to this particular app? Do I really care that much about the service that they're providing that I want to do that? Second, uh, your iPhone, that is your mobile command center. So people should start to invest the time to go into the privacy and security Settings to click on certain items that are more that help your privacy. Like, for example, geolocation services. If you go into the privacy uh, and security settings, if you turn that off, it means they really can't track you. But the downside of that is if you want to use your Google Maps or your uh, Siri to find directions to somewhere, you'd have to turn it back on. And the problem is, Mark, when push comes to shove, people want their Google Maps when they want it. And don't want to keep turning it on or off. So what does that mean? Well, it means your phone now knows where you've been going 24-7, 365. And even if you shut it off, there's usually GPS in your car. So your car knows where you're going sure. 24-7, 365.
0: It, it, it's interesting, right? I mean, you know, we talk a lot about using private browsers and perhaps not mm-hmm. necessarily using Google. Is there anything, is there any thought you have with a private type of browser or or when you're using Safari in private mode, rather?
1: Well, I mean, I've had plenty of uh, clients or high net worth individuals want to use virtual private networks, but really the way that I come after it is, yes, you can use it in private mode, but I really focus on, you know, what websites are you going to, to the extent you can, don't do your banking on on Wi-Fi, um, just really common sense things where you have to stop to think about, should I be doing this transaction, should I not, over Wi-Fi, and really thinking about ways to curtail your digital footprint by the websites you go to, the kind of information that you're sharing with them, how you wanna go about using just even a password manager, and most importantly, taking advantage of multi-factor authentication whenever possible, especially if you can download Google Authenticator Authy or one of those uh, second factor authentications that's some type of token. That can really help uh, from a cybersecurity perspective
0: you know, I don't think it's any coincidence that when we look at a cyber insurance application that MFA is almost a deal breaker for them uh, if a business doesn't currently deploy MFA. So to hear you say MFA is another safeguard, just in another uh, uh, direction, uh, just seems to be uh, very much aligned.
1: I mean, Mark, I I take it one step further. So I have clients where I represent managed security services providers, or even just people who are deploying SaaS products. And I put clauses in the contract that the person who's accessing the SaaS if they're not using MFA and something happens, uh, they're going to be responsible. And if someone pushes back in the deal, I was like, well, what's the problem with MFA? Or I will say, you know what? I'm gladly concede if you can show me two phishing reports where you have zero clicks. Sure, sure. So let's jump
0: into uh, the MA world, right? Um, when you're in a transaction, how important is cybersecurity from the buyer or the seller's perspective? before they get your advice and counsel?
1: Uh, I would say, depending upon the industry, from a buyer's perspective, particularly the private equity funds, it is not nearly the consideration that it needs to be. And I believe the reason for that is mainly that business decisions are driven financially for the private equity funds. And if you have to go doing cyber diligence, it throws off the timing of the deal. They have a certain cadence; they want to get them done. But from a buyer's perspective, cybersecurity can potentially be beyond the purchase price. And an example with that would be: you go, you do a five million dollar acquisition. They have uh, the seller has a uh, intrusion that you don't see because you didn't really do any due diligence. And then quickly after the deal, you want to get the benefit. And what do you do? You typically do the integration with your network. So what does the threat actor do? They go from the target's network Mm -hmm. onto your network, and then they encrypt you, and maybe it costs you 10 or $15 million. Again, that's beyond the purchase price. A great example of that would have been Marriott and Starwood on a Fortune 500 level, but it happens. And then from a seller's perspective, I think they would rather not know, but the problem with that is if you get a buyer who does good due diligence, like the companies that I represent and recommend to them, and they find out about the due diligence process, the result of that can be a significant adjustment to the purchase price and not in a good way for the seller. And then two, it raises the question, well, if this is a problem, what other problems do you have? Sure, sure.
0: So so I know, uh, Justin, you, you have a, a, a nice analogy using the three-layer chocolate cake approach when it comes to huh? cybersecurity and M&A. Can you want to tell us a little bit about the chocolate cake approach? Yes.
1: Yeah, so I got that because my wife and my two daughters love to to bake. But in an and m and a deal, what do you want? You want to have a great deal and get your just desserts. But from a cybersecurity perspective, you need to think about three things. So number one is uh, asking the right questions. And what I mean by that is asking the target, well, can I see a diagram of your network? Two, show me how data flows through your network. And then three, uh, you know, Do you have a written information security plan that details how cybersecurity reports to the board? And I will tell you, most times, Mark, most companies are zero for three. Second is, if if you came to me and said, hey, Justin, I wanna do due diligence on your company, on your network, I'm gonna bring in my third party advisors and we're gonna just really look at your network. And my answer to that is gonna be not no, but hell no, I don't want you fishing around on my network. I don't know if this deal is going through. So the purchase agreement has to fill that gap. So the purchase agreement has to have certain reps and warranties. But as you know, Mark, it can be up to 270 days from the initial intrusion by a threat actor to the time when they engage in their mayhem. So you have to have a certain period where cybersecurity lasts after the closing. In fact, I make it a fundamental rep where it could last through the statute of limitations. It can get negotiated, but that's the second. And then third, and this is probably the key piece, is Don't give in to your desire to quickly integrate the target's network with yours. Because once you own the network, you can send in your security people and try to find any intrusions. And if you can do that while the network is isolated, that doesn't give the threat actor the opportunity to move laterally onto your network and probably cause a lot more damage than had they been isolated to the target. So that is my three-layer cake that if you follow those guardrails, you hopefully get your just desserts from your deal.
0: <laughs> I I like the approach. It's certainly a, a, a nice visual here. Um, when you're doing these negotiations, um, mm-hmm. is perhaps in terms of liability, are caps or super caps, are they helpful from a negotiation standpoint?
1: So if we're talking about an M&A deal, Uh, that absolutely comes into play. I see it a lot more often. Um, Last year, I did my first negotiation for an artificial intelligence software that will help sift through resumes to decide who gets into the actually gets to interview with Mark process. So one of the important parts of that deal was, well, what happens if a threat actor comes in and can reverse engineer the supposedly anonymized data to figure out, hey, that's Justin Daniels' resume. That's Mark Shine's resume. So the question becomes, okay, what's the liability for that? And there was one cap and we're like, nope, sorry for this liability, it's going to be a cap, a super cap, that's a lot higher. So the answer to your question, I routinely see carve outs for cyber that could be at insurance amounts, which can be much higher than the standard liability. Because the bottom line is on any kind of technology contract, the data is critically important, and obviously the security of that data is important. So I routinely engage in negotiations where cybersecurity and privacy are part of the carve-out from the normal limitation of liability or uh, liability cap you find in most customer contracts, as well as the indemnity clauses of MA and a deals.
0: So, so Justin, I mean, we've spoken about a tremendous amount on today's conversation so far. Is there anything that I should have asked you that I didn't get a chance to before I let you go?
1: I'd love to talk about my book for a moment, please. So in October of uh, 2022, cybersecurity awareness month, my wife and I had spent a year writing a book called data Reimagined: creating trust one bite at a time. And we actually made it up to number four on the wall street journal, bestseller list. I almost beat out Paul Newman, but damn him. I don't have his (laughs) marketing. Uh, But what the book is about that might be of interest to your audience is it's really written for a non-technical business audience. And the idea of the book is, how do you use good privacy and cybersecurity hygiene to create trust with your customers? Because as we've seen, bad privacy and cybersecurity practices has created a lot of distrust with a variety of different brands. And with the continued onset of more privacy and cybersecurity regulations, the businesses that grasp that this can be an opportunity to really build trust with your client can really give them a competitive advantage in the marketplace.
0: And how can they find this book?
1: It is available on Amazon. If you go to Amazon and type in Data Reimagined, uh, you will find the book. Uh, or you can go to my wife's website, www.redcloveradvisors.com, and the book can be found there as well.
0: Excellent. And Justin, if, they, if uh, somebody in the audience or one of the listeners want to reach out to you and they have some type of yeah. transaction that they're, they're currently working on, email what's the best way, LinkedIn, what's the best way to, to reach out to you?
1: Uh, You can find my bio on the website, Baker Donaldson, B-A-K-E-R-D-O-N-E-L-S-O-N.com. Or you can find me on LinkedIn. I post there almost every day. And if you send me a DM, I'll be sure to get back to you.
0: Excellent. Well, Justin, thanks for coming on the show and chatting with us.
1: Yeah, thanks very much. Appreciate it.